0: This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action.
1: magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Coming up, the civil rights movement was not totally nonviolent, certainly not in bloody Mississippi. An imprisoned former Black Panther battles COVID-19, and Black women's rights to control their own bodies are still under assault a century and a half after slavery. But first, it's feeling much like the 1960s in America, with protests and clashes with police in scores of cities in the wake of the police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. One of those protests in Newark, New Jersey, was led by Larry Hamm, chairman of the People's Organization for Progress. Larry Hamm is also running for the U.S. Senate seat currently held by Cory Booker. Ham has been endorsed by Dr. Cornell West, the activist and public intellectual.
2: Well, you know, I met Brother Larry 40 years ago. I know a lot of the stories say it's 20 years, but it's really 40 years. We were at Princeton together, and uh, we've been struggling together there, connected with the People's Organization for Progress for over 20 years. Larry Ham is one of the most consistent black freedom fighters since the great Mary Baraka in Newark. And so his record is clear in terms of his focus on poor and working people and especially on poor and working people of color, that he is more than a progressive, that he's actually really a revolutionary figure, really, in Newark. And so I am blessed and honored to support him in his run for U.S. Senate in New Jersey.
3: Larry Hamm has been involved, as you said, for many decades in movement-type politics, but this is his first real major run for electoral office, and he felt that this was the opportunity and the time and the ticket to go into that kind of politics.
2: Yeah, exactly. I think we're at a moment now where the neo-fascist wing of the ruling class, Trump and company, on the one hand, and the neoliberal wing of the ruling class with Biden and the Clintons and Pelosi and Obama and company, that there is an opening here. There's a strong, strong opening here because we saw it with Bernie Sanders, who represented the progressive neo-populist wing of the Democratic Party outside of the Democratic establishment, but still trying to gain access to the ruling class space in the Democratic Party. It was, it was unsuccessful. It was crushed by the neoliberal unity of Biden and Pete and Amy and Obama and company. So that we, we've got now an opening for something much more progressive, much more tied to the needs of of poor and working people with movement-like figures, movements like Brother Larry, into electoral politics to help consolidate a larger mass left opposition against what we hope is the collapse of what you have called with such courage and consistency the duopoly, my brother.
3: But there's Mm -hmm. nobody at the top of that ticket. How do you think that will affect all the down-ticket Folks like Larry Hamm.
2: Yeah, it's going to be up to the supporters of Larry Hamm, the supporters of a progressive left position over against the neo-fascist and neoliberal wings of the ruling class and the Republican and Democratic parties, respectively. It's going to be up to us to forge this kind of turnout. And that's going to be an open question. But it's a challenge, but you're absolutely right. Without having anyone at the top of the ticket, it's going to be a different kind of energy required to focus on Larry Ham, Visa V, Brother Corey, Booker, and so forth.
3: What was your reaction to Bernie Sanders dropping out? Did you get any early notification of it?
2: No, I would have liked to see him go all the way through. It's his choice, of course, but I would like to see him go all the way through to Milwaukee. Absolutely. I I think we needed to have this kind of counter-hegemonic oppositional energy outside of just the neo-fascist wings and the neoliberal wings of the ruling class. We needed to have something represented at that national level. So when he dropped out, you know, I found out like everybody else, and I said, oh, okay. Yeah, I, I love my brother, but I don't always agree with everything he does, you know.
3: Well, they're all, of course... Other parties that are still in the race, the Green Party and others, and a group of Bernie's acolytes in the Movement for a People's Party have broken with the Democrats, and they say that they're going to run in the next election cycle.
2: Yeah, well, well, the second one, Brother Nick, uh, he's a good brother. I was at the founding of that party in Washington, D.C., years ago. And I deeply resonate with what he's trying to do. There's no doubt about it. There's got to be some third party formation that is substantive and serious enough that it constitutes a challenge to the duopoly. There's no doubt about that. Now I got, you know, good friends and uh, comrades in the green party. And we of course will never, ever, ever forget our dear brother, Bruce, whose arguments uh, were influential with me actually supporting the green party. And, uh, last election with sister jill and my very very special brother jumu baraka who's doing very good work with black alliance for peace Uh, now in this particular election see i'm still opting for a vote in swing states for the milquetoast mediocre militaristic biden because I view that as a strategic move as part of an anti-fascist coalition of trying to ensure that we get Trump out. And so I'm kind of caught betwixt and between, you know, that usually I would go with either my Green Party brothers and sisters, the way I did with Jill or the way I did with Ralph Nader, or being very open to what Nick is doing further down the road for some third-party uh, activity. But at this particular moment where we don't have the strong presence, I mean, Howie's a good, but I don't know Howie well, but I have great respect for him and the Green Party. But I just think in these swing states, it may be crucial to have to strategically vote for this architect, of the biggest prison system in the history of the modern world, geared against black people and poor people the major architect of the invasion and occupation of Iraq killing half a million folk. I mean, it, it's going to be very difficult to have to cast a vote without any serious endorsement of someone who was not in any way a friend of poor and working people, let alone a friend of our third world brothers and sisters in Iraq and other countries. But that's the only way it seems to me we can be part of an anti fascist coalition to, to get the gangster out of the White House.
3: Lots of folks, including those of us who are not Democrats, were disappointed to see Bernie Sanders drop out when the COVID crisis was just striking. After all, he was Mr. Healthcare and had access to a bully pulpit during this crisis to hammer home the fact that the United States doesn't have anything resembling a a real healthcare system. I think you all are right. I think you were right. But I think, you know, for me,
2: part of the issue is, my brother, is that it's very clear that the United States is a failed social experiment, that the depths of its white supremacy tie to, in many ways, rooted in the predatory capitalist civilization obsessed with profit and the inability to mobilize the best of its own history, that best would be Malcolm X or Martin King. uh, There's a whole host of other examples of this. It reveals the degree to which it really is a failure as a society, that it cannot in any way speak to the needs, let alone the dignity of poor and working people. And that's why, you know, when you talk about revolution, that's the only alternative is some kind of revolutionary option of some form. I think Martin King saw this clearly. And so when you're looking for a bully pulpit, as you say, and like a, br- a brother Bernie Sanders, who was very much a progressive neo-populist, he was not running really as a democratic socialist, but as a progressive neo-populist, that that was a very important platform. And he's trying to hold on to it. There's no doubt about it. He's trying to get his communication out and so forth. And God bless him in trying to do that. But you're right that uh, by not going all the way to Milwaukee, it made it more difficult to reveal the capitalist failure that is America, especially as it relates to health care. We could say the same thing, you know, about police brutality, police murder. You can say the same thing in terms of... Uh, Wall Street domination, you could say the same thing in terms of the legalized bribery and normalized corruption in Congress vis-a-vis big money and vis-a-vis the corporate elites. There's so many ways in which you could show America as a capitalist failure that it is.
1: That was Cornell West speaking from Harvard University in Boston. The U.S. civil rights movement may have been led by proponents of nonviolence, but black folks in Mississippi believed in defending themselves from racist attack. Akinyele Umoja is a professor of African-American studies at Georgia State University and author of the book, We Will Shoot Back, Armed Resistance and the Mississippi Freedom Movement. In fact, he says most black families in rural areas of the South owned guns. Most definitely, most people own
4: guns and I'd even interviewed elders in the community, elder women, who said that the guns weren't just there for hunting, but some of the elder women I spoke with talked about how their fathers taught them how to shoot so they could defend themselves against white rapists. So it was a part of a culture in our community that elders trained youth to begin to defend themselves. Nonviolence actually is basically a new philosophy in our movement, at least during a period of time, the Civil Rights Movement. The first time nonviolence as a philosophy of Turn the Other Cheek was utilized was 1941 in Chicago. And then it's introduced into the South during the 50s and the 60s. But this tradition of armed resistance, actually, as uh, I say in my book, goes back to the 1st, African who were brought here, and the first Africans that were brought to to, uh, what we now call North America is actually in 1526, when the Spanish bring a colony of people to what is now South Carolina and Georgia, bring 100 Africans, and those Africans uh, align themselves with the indigenous people, and they resisted and eliminated the colony, actually, that the Spanish set up in Georgia. In 1526. So, our resistance tradition goes back as long as we've been here. And nonviolence is basically a new philosophy that was employed most definitely, but I would think only a minority of the activists in the South were truly nonviolent. There were certainly some. Uh, of course, we know that history, but we don't know of the that, that many of them, particularly in the early period of the movement in Mississippi, were protected by people who had guns. And that was the way that they were able to survive, were for people who had armed themselves and who housed them, fed them, allowed them to use their cars, things of that nature. But they also protected the people who came who were committed to nonviolence.
3: Yes, your central argument, the central argument of your book, is that armed resistance was critical to the Southern freedom struggle.
4: That's the central argument, and that it played a significant role in Mississippi in changing the dynamic where people were able not just to have a right to vote, but weren't afraid to go to the polls. Because, you know, many times, even after the law was changed, there was intimidation against black people, and the federal government wasn't there all the time to protect people, and oftentimes wasn't really willing to protect folks. So it was, you know, black people willing, being willing to protect themselves is the thing that changed the dynamic, I argue, along with other things, along with other factors, but usually in our histories and even our media portrayals our the documentaries on the movement, that element is left out. Groups like the Deacons for Defense are left out. Even other people were not as well-known. Not to mention the fact that even activists, well-known activists like Medgar Evers were oftentimes armed or had armed security.
3: Yes, Medgar Evers, the head of the NAACP in Mississippi, who was later assassinated.
4: Yes, sir. In fact, it was funny that some of the nonviolent activists I met told him that Megger Evers would tell them that they were crazy. But the thing about Megger Evers that is significant, I believe, also is early in his career as an activist, he argued that Mississippi needed a mile, mile. And for your listeners who don't know, oh, the mile, mile was the resistance group in Kenya that ran the British or aided in running the British colonialists out of Kenya. Megger Edwards said such a movement was needed in Mississippi, but when he was hired by Roy Wilkins and other leaders in the NAACP to be their central person in the state of Mississippi, they told him to refrain from talking about this concept of a black Mile in Mississippi. So Megger didn't talk about it, but he still had armed security. He still carried guns. His house was well-armed. It's just unfortunate that the night he was assassinated that he told his security to relax themselves that evening, that they didn't need to secure him on the way from a rally to his house. And that's why the racist Byron Beckwith had the opportunity to assassinate him and was able to get away. But Megar Evers was certainly one. When you talk to people, in fact, Merle Evers in the book that she did the autobiography of Megger Evers, she did with Manning Marable, talked about Megger Evers prepared for a race war, which she thought could possibly happen. And he thought that black people, and this would be a surprise to many people, but Megger Evers thought of building, of the black people may need a nation to organize a nation to protect themselves because racism was becoming so intense on Black people in the state of Mississippi and around the South during that particular time in the country.
3: Well, in the memory of many living Blacks in Mississippi in the 1960s, race war had happened in the post-Reconstruction era in Mississippi and Louisiana and South Carolina. They looked like El Salvador.
4: Yes, sir. Looked like El Salvador. It was, in many cases the Klan had planned a genocide against black people. And again, I think for my study in Mississippi, black people being able to fight back showed our agency at least in neutralizing this threat on our lives during that particular time. We had networks in our community, in our ch- churches, and in our civic organizations and our neighborhoods. So for instance, in the city of Macomb, Mississippi, in 1964, there was a dynamite campaign by the Ku Klux Klan being waged on members of the civil rights community that were fighting for the right to vote. It became known as the bombing capital of the world, Macomb, Mississippi. And in response to that, the black community began to not only form self-defense capacity, but there was a time even after... One of the most important leaders in that community was her restaurant. Her business was bombed. The black community responded in what I call a spontaneous uprising or revolt, similar to what we saw in the last few days in Minnesota. And after that, President Johnson intervened. But before that, with all the bombing going on, there was no response on the part of the state or federal government. So it's only after black people exploded that they were listened to. President Johnson called leaders of the black community to meet with him the following day. He flew them up to Washington, D.C. Then he put pressure on the government, uh, the state government. And then within weeks, the perpetrators of the bombing against black people in Macomb, Mississippi, were arrested and then ultimately put on trial. But it was only after black people exploded that they were listened to. So armed resistance took place in a variety of ways, either with self-defense or sometimes it was this spontaneous explosion that would occur that ended up in black people beginning to get intervention on the part of the federal government to make sure that their lives were safe against this genocidal war that was being waged by the Ku Klux Klan.
3: If you get your history from movies like Mississippi Burning, you get the impression that Blacks were dependent on the federal government and the FBI in particular for protection.
4: And I remember in 1994, I attended the anniversary of the Freedom Summer. And, of course, that's the anniversary of when uh, civil rights workers Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney were lynched by the Ku Klux Klan. And as you said, in Mississippi Burning, the theme is the FBI really came in and saved the day. But it was at that time when I attended this event, when the movie was announced, people who had been in Mississippi at that time, they booed when they heard about the movie Mississippi Burning. Many of the people who were in that room at the time that Swerner, Goodman and Cheney had come up missing, had gone to Mississippi to try to find them since they were missing. And Jagger Hoover at that particular time, the head of the FBI, said that this was a local matter and didn't need the involvement of the FBI. When they went on their search, they found bodies of black people in the swamps and in the forest who'd been killed and no one was looking for. Uh you know that Swerner and Goodman were white. So they became more of a priority in terms of the national media at that time. But the FBI, you can also see in in my own research, I found where the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee would reach out to the federal government saying that they were being harassed, there was violence against them, there were were death threats. And you could see that there were no responses. And it was only local communities who formed self-defense groups again that allowed for voter registration workers, black and white, I should add, to organize. I argue, and this is where the title of the book comes from, that after 1964 Democratic Convention, when uh, many of you know of uh, Fannie Lou Hamer going and speaking at the Democratic Convention, at that particular time, the Civil Rights Movement, particularly SNCC and CORE and local Mississippi activists, We're trying to see a Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party as the delegation that would vote at a Democratic convention for the state of Mississippi. But Lyndon Johnson, Martin Luther King, and others, I should add, supported a compromise that would only give the Mississippi delegation, which was multiracial, Mississippi Freedom Party delegation, which was multiracial, give them only two votes, in a larger delegation from the racist Democratic Party in Mississippi, disappointed that the federal government and Lyndon Johnson and the Democratic Party didn't support their goals. More of the people in the movement at that particular time saw that they needed to rely on their own resources. So you had less of a appeal to work with the federal government and more of activism on a local level. And there was even a more intense drive who protect and defend the black community and that's when you see the development of the deacons of defense in the state of mississippi they had already arrived in the state of louisiana and so the deacons of defense kind of represent that black people wouldn't depend on the police we wouldn't depend on the federal government to defend us but we depend upon ourselves and at that time charles evers the brother of mecca everest made this statement he said I have the greatest respect for Dr. Martin Luther King, but nonviolence won't work in Mississippi. If a white man shoots at us, we will shoot back. And that's where the title of the book comes from. And I see that as, again, a representation that there's a shift in the movement, that we won't depend on the federal government. We won't call upon them to intervene because they haven't been intervening. As Malcolm X also said, if they're uh, not willing, willing or able to defend us, We'll protect ourselves. We believe we assert our right to self-defense. And that's what happened in the movement during that particular time, particularly after 1964. You see more aggressive form, visible form of self-defense and military posture on the part of the movement. You see uh, less appeals to nonviolence as you might've saw before in the state, but more of, of, if you shoot at us, we will shoot back. Uh, There were also the use of boycotts. Throughout the state, that became a primary weapon, along with armed self-defense and protection, to defeat segregation on a local level and to win the right to vote and to win Black representation. And now you see more Black representation in Mississippi than any other state in the Union.
3: The Republic of New Africa moved to Mississippi to organize for a Black-ruled state. What's the state of that project?
4: The Provisional Government of Republic of New Africa came to Mississippi in 1970. Their plan was to organize a UN supervised vote for black people to vote for independence or not. Of course, in 1971, the Provisional Government of Republic of New Africa was severely assaulted and harassed. In 1971, there was a raid on their office in Mississippi, and 11 people were put on trial after they defended themselves and a FBI agent was wounded and a, a Jackson, city of Jackson police officer was killed in the gun battle that ensued. RNA spent much of its resources trying to defend its members who were incarcerated. Fortunately, all of them eventually were uh, released from their incarceration after doing sentences but they spent a lot of their resources in protecting their members. One of the people who was involved in support of those RNA members, Republican New Africa members, who was incarcerated during that time was a brother by the name of Shokwe Lamumba. And because of this effort, he decided to go back, complete law school. He was originally from Detroit, completed law school at Wayne State. He would move back to Mississippi in the 1970s with the organization I'm proud to belong to, with the New African People's Organization and later the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement. And it was decided that he would run for office in the spirit of what the RNA tried to accomplish back in the 1970s. And in 2009, he won city council seat overwhelmingly. In 2013, he became mayor of the city. Of course, he had an untimely death, 2014. In the same spirit, his son, Shokwe Anta Lumumba, ran for mayor. Uh, he was unsuccessful after his father died. But in 2017, he was able to win in the primary, defeating the incumbent mayor, city councilman. He defeated a county supervisor a state senator all who outspend him had two times the amount of money that he had to run in his campaign and so that dream of a, the provisional government in terms of the rna in terms of establishing black self-determination they're building on that with this whole concept of a people's assembly which has been operating in jackson mississippi the jackson people's assembly which is trying to b- build grassroots power for Black people in the state, and Antar Lamumba is a representation of, that, of the continuation of that struggle.
3: Mississippi remains the blackest state in the union, but it's still ruled by right-wing white folks. How important is armed self-defense today?
4: Well, armed self-defense is not only important in Mississippi, but we could see. It's important around the country. In the state I live in, in Georgia, we see the modern-day lynching of our young brother in Brunswick, Georgia, Omar Arbery, in February. Uh, last week, we see the killing in Minnesota of George Floyd. So, as Malcolm X once said, "Stop talking about the South. If you're south of the Canadian border, if you're south." You know, we see the condition of black people whether we're in large and significant numbers like we are in Mississippi, or if we're in small numbers like in Minnesota, our lives are in jeopardy. And it's important for us to begin to build community networks to defend ourselves. When we think about the situation that occurred in Charleston, South Carolina, a few years back where this young white racist was allowed to come into one of our churches and kill our elders when they're praying, when they're there to pray, when they're supposed to be in a sanctuary. It gives us the notion that all of our institutions, we need to have a capacity to protect and defend ourselves. It's not a small Vanguard group that's going to be able to protect our community. The Calvary's not coming either, that we need to, in our communities, The men and women and youth in our communities need to get organized to protect and defend ourselves no matter where we live within this empire. The most vocal advocate of armed self-defense was a man by the name of Robert F. Williams, who organized a self-defense campaign in Monroe, North Carolina in 1957. He and his family were forced into exile in 1961. And he continued to advocate armed self-defense for black people in Cuba, went through radio broadcasts and through a newsletter that he started along with his wife, Mabel Williams, and another black pioneer, Ethel Isaiah Johnson, um, currently working on editing his autobiography and his wife's autobiography. In the next few years, you should see that publication of Robert F. Williams. Just to continue this conversation, because we can see with the killing of our people around the country, whether it be by police or vigilantes, the necessity of black people to be armed, to protect themselves, to be organized. An organization is the best protection we can offer.
1: That was Akinyele Umoja, professor of African American Studies at Georgia State University. Jalil Muntakim is a former member of the Black Panther Party, and the Black Liberation Army. Muntakim has been behind bars for almost half a century, repeatedly denied parole. Now he's battling COVID-19 in a New York prison hospital. For the latest on Muntakim's condition, we spoke with Jihad Abdul-Mumit, chair of the Jericho Movement.
5: The latest is that he is in Albany Medical Center, which I am told by comrades and people in the movement, that in spite of everything happening, it is a good treatment center, meaning to say that hopefully he won't be get dogged out and, and experienced medical neglect on purpose. That type of thing that is tend to happen in prisons and maybe another hospital that, you know, he could have went to. So a lot of prisoners from the area of prisons go there. And when they do, it's just seldom needs for stories of, you know, this happened or that happened or should have happened. So with that, there's a glimmer of hope that he will, under the circumstances, make it. You know, regardless of where he is, that's the hope. But his temperature, as we we're told, has went, it spiked up to uh, 103-ish or so, 102.6. And now uh, it was back down a couple of days ago to 98.6. He has, his oxygen level is 81. And you know, it should be 95. So that was the main concern. So he's given oxygen oxygen and and medications.
3: Brother Jalil Muntakem is, of course, an elder, having been locked up since 1971. And the COVID virus is lethal often to elder people.
5: Yes, indeed. That's a major concern.
3: And just today,
5: at 1 o'clock, he had a hearing, and represented by Attorney Nora Carroll the Legal Aid Society in New York, and it was actually live online. So the hearing was based upon the fact that the attorneys filed for a compassionate release because of the medical condition, and that Jalil Abdul Mutakim was high risk for COVID 19, had a heart condition and respiratory illnesses, and that in his age puts him at high risk and being in prison, of course. So they filed in Sullivan County in New York. And lo and behold, the judge ordered his immediate release, and it was profound. And quite naturally, the attorney general appealed that with a stay motion, and the court's honored to stay. So, (laughs) breaks on. He did not get released.
3: That seems the way the state of New York plays that game when it comes to Jaleel Muntakem.
5: Indeed the decision will be made as far as what's going to happen with him in terms of his release under this situation with the COVID 19 on June the 8th
3: Brother Monta Kim has gotten good news like that in terms of parole before only to have it squashed
5: yes the state will prevail hopefully not this time he goes back to for the pro in uh, September I believe uh, will he will have another Bite of this apple, so to speak, is freedom. So now we have two things legally before him. We have this hearing for his release, and it would be temporary, as I'm understanding it, this new thing, temporary release to a residence. I don't know what temporary would be like because of um, finding out that in other states, even with political cases that are not known to be, which in a way every case is political, but cases that are not considered to be political prisoner cases, people are getting this temporary release thing. And so I don't know how it's going to play back when this pandemic thing is kind of like over with and people, do they report back to prison? We can't imagine how that's going to go. And we're finding out that that's happened in other countries also, this temporary release, depopulation, the temporary depopulation of prisons. So uh, he has two legal opportunities to be released, one under this the motion that's in front of us now and decision to be made June 8th. And going back before the pro board in I think september October, something of that nature,
3: Mr. Munta Kim is somewhat sick right now, but normally he 's a buzz of activity, politically extremely active, even at his advanced age
5: yes he 's very active, his mind is lucid, and he 's fully involved in helping others and addressing human rights issues from in prison, but in, more importantly, just as importantly so, while in prison, helping other prisoners with their own edification and education and things of that nature all makes him legally a prime candidate to be released because he was sentenced to 25 to life, and he's done 25 times 2 plus. So the judge sentencing is almost like an affront to the judge, you know, within the internal workings of the injustice system to have a judge sentence somebody. And then the parole board continuously resentence you because uh, the requirements to meet parole is that you met the minimum of your sentence. And once the minimum is met, then everything else defaults to your behavior in prison and whether or not you would deprecate the seriousness of the crime, meaning that that you would be a threat to your community. So he's met his minimum. He has a stellar prison record inside, for lack of a better word, a model prisoner, uh, meaning not coming up with infractions as such. And he does not deprecate because he was swamped. uh, Each time he went to the parole board with, I don't know, hundreds of support letters from politicians to clergy to community members and to family and so full support. Everything is ready for him when he comes home so it would not be deprecating seriousness of crime and he definitely is not a threat to the community which he resides.
3: How many other former Black Panthers still remain behind bars? I think we have
5: about seven that we represent and I'm talking about the National Jericho Movement, which I am the chairperson of, that would be I guess it was Sundiata Coli who has also had a parole hearing that he was denied parole, and that is working its way through the courts, and plans are being made to file also for that urgent release due to the fact that he himself, being 83 or so, is definitely a a high risk for the uh, COVID-19. And we have other brothers that's part of the different movements related to the Panther Party. You know, we have Matula Shakur, Dr. Matula Shakur, who has stage 3 cancer. And it's also a high risk for COVID-19. And so he would be, we have Avronza Bowers. We have Mauman Kabir, Ed Poindexter, Romaine Chip Fitzgerald on the West Coast. So we have a few brothers still remaining. And mind you now, these individuals have been five decades into in, incarceration. We have imam Jamil Alameen, who was formerly a member of the Black Panther Party. We have a lot of activity going on with his case now with the petition online there's some real serious egregious activities going on. Uh, his case has come to light with this informant, Otis Jackson, coming to the front. And then uh, we have always Mumia Abu-Jamal, who successfully got off a death row, but now they have his death sentences translated into life forever. And so these are some of the brothers that are in the movement thus far still struggling for their freedom
3: and their voice on the outside is the Jericho Movement. You guys, how do people get in touch with you?
5: Thejerichomovement.com, it's just look us up, and it has the histories and the bios, and most of the updates are on these brothers and other individuals that are political prisoners, particularly from the movements of the 70s. We have Rochelle McGee, uh, Leonard Peltier, and Jan Lyman, and Bill Dunn. We have other prisoners that's also Blanco, If you're not familiar with the names, that we have little bios in their case histories of who they are on our website, www, the Jericho Movement, and always there's opportunities for people to be able to support them, if only by sending them $20 for their commissary. Their address and how to do that is on there so that they can survive in prison Or you can align yourself with rendering support. Usually when a person goes up for parole, Brother Glenn, it's a strategic calling for letters of support, calling in to the Attorney General's office or to the parole board to show that people are supporting them and that they are welcome in our communities. So that avenue and that method and how you can help Render support to these political prisoners there. You can have programs or letter writings in your community where you can sit and, and people from your families or can write these prisons. Because being a political prisoner myself, getting a letter from people, is, is, it does an immense amount of good for a person's well-being and to let them know that the sacrifices that they have made that caused them to be in prison for so long now have not been forgotten and that people are still gaining benefits from their life by knowing about them. Matter of fact, Brother Glenn, I would say that one of the most live ways that you can attach to movements of the past is not through a reading a book, which is all very important. Reading is essential. But one of the most live, active ways is supporting a freedom fighter who was actually involved in those movements and giving them direct support while they are still alive. So if anybody wants to support these brothers, including Jalil, is just to be attuned to what What's being said on, on the website and the focus now is to try to get him out on parole. And even before that, to try to what well, we're waiting now, with, you know, holding our breath on the hearing, which is att- attorneys did a very, very remarkable job arguing in the courts for his release. He meets all the requirements as a human being, the time served, his age, his health, good prison record, as we should say, as we would look at it. And all those things that's happening for him, and the United States just holds the record for holding people so long, probably more than any country in the world, not only the length of time a person does in prison, oftentimes in solitary confinement, but the number of people that's in prison, it it, it beats everybody, number for number and per capita. So the United States has a a dismal, bleak, and racist record when it comes to that, particularly the disproportionate rate of people of color, Jalil being one of them. So we're just asking for justice. That's all we're asking for. Not a favor, just justice to be done.
1: Jihad Abdul-Mumit of the Jericho Movement. Slavery may have been abolished more than a century ago, but Black women still battle for the right to full ownership of their own bodies. Jill Morrison is director of the Women's Law and Public Policy Fellowship at Georgetown University, where she is a law professor. Morrison has written an article titled, Resuscitating the Black Body. Reproductive Justice as Resistance to the State's Property Interest in Black Women's Reproductive Capacity.
0: The title is actually a tribute to Dorothy Roberts, who wrote the seminal Killing the Black Body, that spoke of all of the ways that the state infringes upon black women's reproductive autonomy and always has. So the reason why the black body needs resuscitating is because we are still seeing examples where the state through virtue of state action, is imposing a property interest on black women's bodies. By property interest, I mean the real property interest that you would have in a piece of land, including the right to use that land and the right to exclude that land. So the article actually goes through the various examples of the way that that was captured within enslavement with black women's bodies as property and the way it still continues today through measures to restrict women's reproductive autonomy.
3: Yes, the state used to safeguard white people's personal property in slaves. And now that slavery as we do it no longer exists, why does the state continue to assert those rights over black people?
0: So specifically with regard to black women and black women's ability to reproduce, Killing the Black Body went through this in greater detail than I could ever dream of doing in this one article. But what the state is attempting to do, of course, is regulate markets. So when you want black women to reproduce for the purpose of advantaging the state, then you can set ways to do that through policy. When you don't want black women to reproduce or a certain type of black women to reproduce, then you can also do that. So in this way, you see that the state is actually advancing its interests through the control of black women's reproduction.
3: And one of the more dramatic ways that black women's reproductive rights are being challenged is with the charge that abortion is genocide against black people.
0: Yes, I as a black woman find this incredibly offensive. I don't know any black woman that doesn't find this offensive. This idea that black women make their reproductive decisions to terminate a pregnancy in a specific effort to carry out violence against black people and diminish black people is absolutely ludicrous. It also glosses over the fact of why black women actually have abortions. Black women do have abortions at higher rates because we have higher rates of unintended pregnancy. And that is in part due to all of the systemic barriers that black women face, both to education, sexuality education, gaining access to the most effective forms of birth control, and other factors, but it is certainly not in an effort to reduce the black population, which would, in fact, be genocide. It also glosses over the fact that the vast majority of people who terminate pregnancies are already parents, so black women are doing this in consideration of the families that they have and the need to meet the needs of those families.
3: Now, many of the more public campaigns that charge abortion is black genocide are actually funded by some very rich white people, but there is indigenous black opposition to abortion.
0: In fact, there absolutely is. I would never gloss over and say that every black person is by definition in support of abortion rights. But I'm certainly far more respectful and tolerant of those messages in opposition to abortion that are coming from black people. When you see all of those funded campaigns by white-led organizations, the first question to ask is, how have these organizations done anything to actually uplift the lives of black children and black mothers? And the answer is absolutely zero those are that are on the side of banning abortion and banning access for black women's ability to terminate a pregnancy have done absolutely nothing to change the conditions under which black women are able to parent, including social supports, including access to health care, including making our communities safer, including reducing police violence. So at least when those voices do tend to come from the black community, I am a lot less suspicious about the motivations because I would like to presume that those voices that are opposing abortion within the black community are also supporting the uplift of the black community.
3: Yes, you point out that Marcus Garvey, for example, the Black Panther Party and the Nation of Islam were all aligned against black women's abortion rights.
0: At one point, that is far more nuanced of a conversation. And we have actually seen that within the Black Panther Party, of course, as they gained a more feminist sensibility with the leaders that we all know and love, they actually did start to come around and recognize that this was a choice that was to be left to the individual woman.
3: And in the context of the Black Panther Party, the Panther Party was opposed to the U.S. state having any jurisdiction over black people.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that is very much in keeping with their desire for us to be autonomous. But that would be an entire conversation on the philosophy of the Black Panther Party, of which I'm certainly not well versed.
3: Abortion certainly isn't a matter of convenience for most black women. You point out that most black women have to go outside their neighborhoods to receive those kinds of services. And in fact, many have to go outside the state.
0: Yes. One of the rhetoric of the anti-abortion movement a few year, years ago was that all of these clinics were strategically placed within black communities in order to lure black women in, as though the example, the best example I can give is, I have a 7-Eleven in my neighborhood. As a result, I probably drink more Slurpees than I should. They were equating abortion to that, that it was conveniently placed for black women. Number one, how asinine is that to say that it was a matter of convenience, so we're just going to pop in and get an abortion. And number two, it's just statistically absolutely false. Access to abortion is very, very difficult for the vast majority of women in this nation. We know that there are geographic deserts in terms of abortion access and that the vast majority of abortion clinics are not conveniently placed for low-income communities and black women to reach them.
3: Opponents of black women's reproductive rights have even enlisted the reputation, if not the actual cooperation, of Black Lives Matter.
0: So this is another one of those areas that I and other advocates find especially offensive. So of course, Black Lives Matter stems out of the movement against state violence against black people. So we've seen the co-opting of Black Lives Matter by those who oppose abortion rights by claiming that, oh, if Black Lives Matter, then Black Lives must matter in the womb. This is actually completely against the framing of Black Lives Matter, which was started by Black women and includes an anti-patriarchal frame. So Black Lives Matter has actually partnered with reproductive justice organizations to affirm their common goals and because the reproductive justice framework includes the right to raise children in a safe and healthy environment, Black Lives Matter and reproductive justice are certainly of one accord.
3: Ben Carson is always good copy. He's President Trump's cabinet member over housing and urban development, and he's compared Black women who have abortions with slave owners.
0: So the idea of Black women as slave owners, the slavery rhetoric framing around abortion, it stems from this idea that just as abortion was accepted, acceptable among good Americans 200 years ago, one day we will think of abortion in the same way. This narrative that plays on this idea that abortion is a plot to destroy the black race, it's a complete fallacy. The idea that women who are having abortions are like slave owners is to say that women who are actually taking an act that affirms their autonomy, that that makes them like the very ones that once upon a time oppressed them. And I have a quote in the piece from Imani Gandhi responding to Ben Carson saying that if abortion is like slavery, then what of the women who suffered under slavery? What of the women who performed self-abortions in order to resist slavery? slavery. They ceased to exist, end quote. And the fact is that under enslavement, women took action in order to resist slavery that specifically was based on their desire to have reproductive freedom. And yes, this included ways to terminate pregnancies using recipes that they brought with them from the motherland. This includes, of course, a very famous case upon which the novel Beloved is based of a woman killing her children rather than seeing them taken into slavery. And it also includes women who, who took steps to make sure that they could keep their children with them, who were motivated to escape, specifically for the purposes of making sure that their children were free. So this erasure of black women from the entire history of slavery and our slave narratives I wouldn't expect anything more from Ben Carson.
3: Yes, in fact, forcing women to have babies is about as close to slavery as you can get.
0: Exactly. I cannot agree more. That is the complete co-opting of one's body and one's life. That is, in fact, slavery.
3: You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.